Well, good morning again, brothers and sisters of Community Bible Church. I ask that you turn your Bibles to John chapter 3. On September 7th, 1969, the body of 56-year-old James Pike was recovered in the Judean wilderness south of the Qumran Caves in Israel, where the Dead Sea Scrolls had been found. James and his third wife, Diane, who was 24 years his junior, they went to Israel to research a new book idea that he had on the historical Jesus. James and Diane rented a Ford Cortina. They bought two Cokes, and using the Avis rental map, they planned for a short ride to the Qumran Caves. After making a few wrong turns, however, their Ford got stuck in a rut and they couldn't get it out. They had no water and realized that they were in a desperate situation given the terrain of the Judean wilderness and the heat of the sun. They started walking, but went in the wrong direction. They found shade, but it didn't last for long. At sunset, James needed to rest. Diane pressed on ahead alone through the night. She found help. Later the next day, a search party recovered the body of James Pike. It seemed that he was climbing a steep canyon wall. He slipped and likely fell over 60 feet to his death. You might say, Oliver, what's the big deal with James Pike? Never heard the name before in my life. What makes his death important? James Boyce says the James Pike story is one of the most tragic stories and one that seems to epitomize all of the weaknesses of organizational Christianity. James Pike's story is relevant for us today in this. The man was an ordained priest in the Episcopal Church in 1946. He graduated from Union Theological Seminary in 51, and in 55, he became a well-known spokesman for liberal Protestantism, so much so that he was invited by ABC News to host his own weekly television show. Three years later, Bishop James Pike was elected to the office of Bishop of California in the Episcopal denomination. By modern evangelical standards, Bishop James Pike was a premier salvation authority in America in the 1950s and 60s, and yet James Pike was a failed authority in American evangelicalism. Publicly, James Pike's liberal Christianity caused him to question the doctrines of hell and the Trinity, and to advance a, the proposal of a Protestant superchurch, which would merge together all Protestant denominations. Personally, James Pike was a disaster. He was an alcoholic who annulled his first marriage and divorced his second wife, which got him kicked out of his denomination, who wouldn't allow him to marry his third. After one of his sons committed suicide, Pike sought to contact his dead son through a medium in Philadelphia. We all want to ask this, who made James Pike a bishop? Who did this? How was James Pike ever qualified to lead, preach, teach, and shepherd the flock of God? Was James Pike a wolf in sheep's clothing? And maybe the million-dollar question, was Bishop James Pike even born again? You're in John chapter 3. At the story of Nicodemus, who himself is the premier salvation authority in Jerusalem in A.D. 30, who went in search of the actual Jesus, not the historical one, 1,993 years ago. What we find out in this story is that religious titles mean nothing. Just as with Bishop James Pike, so too with Nicodemus the Pharisee, these men were not born again. No amount of academically merited characters 
at the end of your name, nor titles under your signature can guarantee your entrance into the kingdom of God. Entrance into the kingdom of God, entrance into heaven, does not happen by your strength, your merit, your choosing, but by spiritual second birth, which is entirely an act of the power and grace of God. Martin Luther says, God has taken my salvation out of my hands into His, making it depend on His choice and not mine, and has promised to save me not by my own work or exertion, but by His grace and mercy. Luther understood the salvation of the Bible to be one-sided, God-given, grace-driven, monergistic, and Calvinistic. God alone is the author of salvation into human hearts on His terms and in His timing. On this night in Jerusalem, Jesus very confrontationally, aggressively, and unapologetically confronts Nicodemus with all the errors of his own personal, man-made, man-centered understanding of salvation by human effort. On this night, Jesus shares three terms of salvation which highlight the exclusivity of eternal life. Jesus clarifies three conditions of salvation for Nicodemus on this night which beget belief in spirit-driven rebirth. Jesus does this by sharing the born-again formality, the first of three terms of salvation, the born-again formality. We looked at this in the past weeks in verses 1 through 3, the born-again formality. Sorry, Nicodemus, your good works can't make you born again. You must be born again, born anothen, anothen, born from above. This results in maximum frustration when Jesus gives him the formality of spiritual second birth. You must be born again. Frustration and confusion on Nicodemus' part, which require Jesus to respond with the born-again fraternity. We see in verses 4 through 9, the born-again fraternity, the second of three terms of salvation, where we see the creation of a secret society, you might say, a secret society right out in the open, because none of you hid your cars when you parked in the lot. Here we all are, the secret society of God's elect. This screams of divine exclusivity. Because flesh only gives birth to flesh, the Spirit must give birth to second spiritually born people. Jesus, God-centered, God-exalting, God-glorifying understanding of kingdom entrance is more than Nicodemus can possibly comprehend in his own strength. He asks, how can these things be in John 3.9, which brings us to the born-again finality. The third of three terms of salvation, verses 10 through 15, the born-again finality is what we will consider today. The born-again finality, the third of three terms of salvation. It is here in the text of verses 10 through 15 that Jesus rebukes Nicodemus' failure to understand salvation on God's terms. And yet, after discipline and rebuke, Jesus graciously shares with Nicodemus the most critical details required to redeem and rescue humanity out of the darkness of their sin and usher men into His marvelous eternal light. As we read the text together now, understand just how confrontational this conversation really is. Recognize that Nicodemus is himself a wolf in sheep's clothing at this time. And consider the grace of Jesus, both in the rebuke that He will give and in the sharing 
of the ultimate truth of salvation by which Jesus will ultimately cause Nicodemus to be born again. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, and you do not accept our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so, the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. I've shared with you that Jesus' words end here at John 3.15. Jesus calls himself repeatedly the Son of Man. Never does he call himself the only begotten Son, but the Apostle John does regularly. And so it's best to understand that John 3.16 is an excited summary statement to this evening salvation class conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, and this summary statement is given by the Apostle John himself. Just as a presidential speech is concluded with commentary by those who watched it, so too the Apostle John explains with excitement what Jesus was telling Nicodemus about the new birth. And we can agree to disagree on where the red letters in your Bible start and stop. That's all fine and good. What we can't disagree on is salvation that is being presented in John chapter 3 is consistent from verses 1 through 15 through 16, 17, and 18. We have to understand that this is a consistent salvation. John 3 is presenting monergism and not synergism. God works alone to save. This is not God working with the free will of men to save those who are smart enough to seek and pursue Him for salvation. Synergism is men in their own free will striving and working and striving and working to get to God on their terms. Monergism is God doing all the work of salvation on His own over the top of your wicked sinfulness. When it comes to your family and friends, you don't want to sell them synergism. You don't. You want to point them to the only salvation that will actually save them, which is monergism. Don't trap them like Roman Catholics, Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, Jews and Muslims into synergistic systems of religious men working for salvation. 
Cause them to understand that you are praying for them to be saved monergistically by the power of God over the top of their sinfulness. Cause them to see that salvation. That's a salvation worth writing home about. John 3 is presenting one-sided salvation produced by the Spirit of God to the glory of God by the grace of God alone. Unfortunately, the majority of Christians in our world today give emphasis to a faulty, man-centered understanding of John 3.16 at the expense of the God-centered declarations by Jesus in John 3.1-15. Sadly, many Christians help Satan create a false salvation produced by the free will choice of men when they highlight the whosoever in John 3.16. Tragically, man-centered salvation by merit or by decisionism will save no one. It saves nobody. You cannot choose to enter the kingdom of God. Didn't work for Nicodemus. Truly, truly, friends, I say to you, salvation is a free gift given by God to those whom He has chosen from eternity past to be saved. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say this, For by grace you've been saved through faith, And that faith is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. How crazy is it to think Nicodemus is at the pinnacle of religious piety in Jerusalem in AD 30, and yet he doesn't know God and has not been born again. How crazy is it to think that by his own free will choices and by the foolish free will choices of many others in Jerusalem, Nicodemus has become the premier salvation and authority for all of Jerusalem, but he himself was not saved. How crazy is it to think the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob allowed such foolishness among the religious leaders of Israel, who appointed for themselves a spiritual leader who was himself spiritually blind. Brothers and sisters, God allowed Nicodemus to become the religious leader of the Jews as a punishment to their nation. In the same way that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are a disgrace and punishment to our nation, God allows the blind to lead the blind as a form of discipline and punishment for rebellion and rejection of His rules, His ways, and His righteousness. David says in Psalm chapter 2, verse 2, The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take their counsel together against Yahweh and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury. And the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 40, 15, Behold, the nations, they are like a drop in a bucket. They are counted as a speck of dust on the scales. The Lord punished Israel with King Saul. And after the nation was divided under King Solomon, Israel and Judea had collectively 39 kings. Can you remind me, How many of those 39 were good and how many of those 39 were evil? There were 31 evil kings. It's no surprise to find the ignorant and unsaved Pharisee Nicodemus is the one who's leading Jerusalem and Israel in AD 30. Bishop James Pike was not a surprise failure in the Episcopal Church, nor is it a surprise that proper punishment and divine justice for America will likely be the re-election and elder abuse of our career politician, President Joe Biden. Just as the leaders of the nation are like drops of bucket, drops of water in the hand of God, so too the salvation of individual human souls is determined by God. 
who alone performs spiritual rebirth. And he does this sovereignly. Jesus has communicated very effectively God's sovereignty and salvation with the premier salvation analogy when he said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. This word picture is clear. It's extremely clear. In the military, you would call this crystal clear, sir. And still, in order to remove all doubt about the exclusivity of the second birth being exclusively an act of God, Jesus gives a second word picture, a double metaphor, just in case we need extra assurance of how clear this can be. This time in John 3, 8, with the illustration of wind. If physical birth is not enough of a picture for you to understand your inability to control salvation, well then how about the picture of your ability to control wind? How well do you control wind? Jesus says in John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. There's a play on words here in the text. The Greek word for wind is the word pneuma, which means breath, wind, or spirit. This comes into your world at pneumatic tools, wind-driven tools. We can understand how this word came to be simply by observation. When people die, their breath is no longer in them. They no longer breathe air, nor can they blow out wind because their spirit has left them. Context is the determinative factor in interpretation. Here, the context indicates Jesus likes the use of this word of double meaning, which he is using it for here in the context, which has already come up three times. Jesus is intent on driving home how little Nicodemus knows about the pneuma, the wind, the spirit. Steve Lawson says there are four important aspects of wind in this illustration that we must be mindful of if we are to fully understand spirit-driven new birth. Lawson says, number one, wind is independent. It doesn't come under our control. It has a mind of its own, even the mind of God. Wind is independent, number one. Number two, wind is irresistible. It makes the unwilling sail to sail. It makes the unwilling weed to tumble. Lawson says, in the same fashion, the Holy Spirit removes all obstacles that would block His entrance into any human life. He makes the unwilling to be willing. Along the lines of Lydia's heart, she was the seller of purple, whose heart was opened by the Lord to understand all that Paul was preaching in Philippi in Acts 16, verse 14. Third, Lawson gives us this, wind is invisible. Just as we can't see wind, we can only see its effects, so too Lawson says no one can actually see the Holy Spirit in His life-giving operation of regeneration. Fourth, wind is incomprehensible. No one can tell you where the wind will blow next. You might think that you can, but don't bet on it. The same is true of the Holy Spirit. You might think that your friend at the gym is so close to salvation and you spend time sharing the gospel with them, which is a great thing, but they reject you. Meanwhile, that same day, you share the gospel very briefly with the nom-nom gas station attendant, and the Lord chooses to save that guy. Friends, we are partial. The Lord is impartial in giving salvation. He saves based on what He has predetermined will bring Him the greatest glory. And for this reason, 
The Holy Spirit moves in second spirit birth like the wind. He is independent, irresistible, unable to be stopped, invisible, and incomprehensible. While we consider the irresistible work of the Holy Spirit, allow me to give you John Calvin's thoughts when he said this, quote, No man will ever of himself be able to come to Christ. It's very interesting when you listen to people tell their testimonies. I came to Christ when? John Calvin says, No man will ever of himself be able to come to Christ, but God must first approach him by his Spirit. And hence it follows that all who are not drawn but that God bestows this grace on those whom he has elected. True indeed, as to the kind of drawing, it is not violent drawing, so as to compel men by external force, but still it is a powerful impulse in the Holy Spirit which makes men willing, who formerly were unwilling and reluctant. Brothers and sisters, I absolutely love and rejoice in the thought of the Spirit being irresistible. The Holy Spirit makes the unwilling to be willing. We who were hostile toward the gospel, He makes more than simply peaceful to the gospel. He makes us the ambassadors and heralds of the gospel we once hated. Our God is that powerful and He is that good to those who He has chosen from before the foundation of the world. The born-again salvation wrought in us by the Holy Spirit must be honored, celebrated, fully enjoyed, appreciated and preached. Allow me to give you 10 reasons to enjoy the born-again salvation Jesus is explaining to Nicodemus. First of these 10 reasons to enjoy born-again salvation, the first reason to enjoy born-again salvation is, number one, it proves the strength of God, not men. Second, born-again salvation proves assurance, certainty, bold confidence, and eternal security to know God did this to me. I did not do this to myself. Third, born-again salvation removes all boasting from men and demands we boast in Christ alone. Fourth, born-again salvation requires all glory go to God alone. Fifth, born-again salvation secures the end of striving to save myself. Born-again salvation is itself the death nail for legalism, asceticism, mysticism, and a whole host of other man-centered ideologies. Sixth, born-again salvation keeps the wolves out. One-sided, God-given, grace-driven, monergistic, Calvinistic salvation is the most strict, rigid, inflexible salvation known to men because God alone is the giver. There's no hybrid. There's no AI, man, Machine type thing, there's no, there's no hybrid salvation, man, God working together, it's all God. And as a result, wolves are much less likely to find a home where Calvinism is taught because Calvinists find a way to sniff them out and run them out. Seventh, ten reasons to enjoy born-again salvation. Number seven, born-again salvation declares the total triumph and victory of the love and grace of God over fallen, broken humanity. Eighth. Born-again salvation shows no partiality to the strong, successful, elite, pretty, smart, able-bodied. God-given spiritual second birth can be delivered, friends, to any one of y'all, anyone. Look at yourselves. This is the group that God saved. He'll save anyone. That's good news. Born-again salvation, ninth, verifies and confirms the total sovereign control of God over all of the affairs of men. Nothing is out of God's sovereign control, 
especially the salvation of sinful human souls. And tenth, number ten, born-again salvation nullifies the wisdom of men, making a mockery of all of the salvation scheming and cunning craftiness of spiritual charlatans who proclaim a fake, phony, man-centered salvation that has a physical or financial cost often attached to it. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians 2. This is just my top 10 list for loving Jesus' born-again salvation analogy, which the Holy Spirit blows like wind where He wishes, whenever He wishes. Steve Lawson says that the power of the Holy Spirit, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, hearts are blown open and unbelief is removed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Saving faith is swept into the soul under His sway. Swept into the soul under His sway. Leon Morris says of Jesus' wind analogy in John 3.8, the passage would mean then that people cannot predict the movements of the Spirit. The Spirit breathes where He wills, and just as people cannot comprehend the Spirit, neither can they comprehend anyone that is born of the Spirit. Allow me to qualify Leon Morris' statement just a bit. Leon Morris is speaking here of the unsaved, those who are still lost in their sins and not born again from above. These ones, the unsaved, cannot comprehend the Spirit or the working of the Spirit. It's just like Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 2, 14, where you are now. When Paul says, but a natural man, an unsaved man, does not accept the depths of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually examined. But he who is spiritual, that is the born-again man, examines all things, yet he himself is examined by no one, because God has justified him and made him righteous in his sight like Abraham. These ones, the unsaved, cannot comprehend the look, feel, desire, or speech that comes out of the born-again. The unsaved can see unrighteous actions coming out of the children of God, but they do not understand righteous acts are driven by the Holy Spirit of God who is living inside of the children of God, and all of this is being produced out of the children of God, ultimately for the glory of God. They cannot understand. Turn back in your Bibles to John chapter 3, verse 9. Herein lies the problem for our text. We've already established that Nicodemus is himself not born again. He is not saved. But he is the holder of the title, at least from my book, the premier salvation authority in all of Israel. And yet, he has never understood spiritual second birth. you get that? He, the premier salvation authority in Israel, has never understood spiritual second birth. Not only has he not experienced being born again, worse still, it seems that Nicodemus was never able to distinguish the born again from the not born again among the flock of God under his care. And how could he? You've heard the expression, it takes one to know one. Sadly, Nicodemus was not born again, and as a result, at this time, he was unable to see second spiritual birth placed by God into the people under his care. What a horrible, horrible, horrible indictment of his ministry. Where, does, or where, where do we see this horrible indictment of Nicodemus' ministry? We see it in Nicodemus' own words in John 3, 9. Nicodemus answered 
and said to Jesus, how can these things be? How can these spiritual things be? Oh no, don't ask that question, Nicodemus. You know better, pal. Jesus is going to blast you right out of his sight. Remember, brothers and sisters, this conversation is happening at the end of Jesus' first ministry Passover in AD 30. Earlier in the week, Jesus was performing signs in Jerusalem after scourging the temple and running out all the sellers of oxen and sheep along with their animals and overturning the tables of the money changers. If Jesus was so forceful with unrighteousness in the temple, how much disdain does Jesus have for the man primarily responsible for leading the people of Israel spiritually astray and far away from the genuine God-honoring salvation the Bible articulates? At this point, Jesus is obligated to rebuke Israel's premier salvation authority directly. When he does, Jesus responds decisively and with extreme finality. We have here in the text of John 3, 10 through 15, the born-again finality that comes from Jesus' mouth to crush the pride of this wicked, sinful man, Nicodemus. Jesus is going to bring this conversation to a conclusion, but not after addressing two salvation stumbling blocks that squeeze the life out of human pride. In our text today, Jesus fires two affirmations of sovereignty which demand reverence for His eternal deity. And so the question for our text today, what two affirmations of sovereignty crush pride and demand reverence for Jesus. What two affirmations of sovereignty crush pride and demand reverence for Jesus? Jesus affirms in our text the first of two affirmations of His sovereignty. Number one, Nicodemus failed authority. Number one in our text, Nicodemus failed authority. Jesus affirms that. Second, Jesus affirms His own forever authority in verses 13 through 15. And so we have two affirmations of sovereignty. Number one, Jesus affirms Nicodemus' failed authority in verses 10 10 through 12. And Jesus affirms his own forever authority in verses 13 through 15. Let's consider first Jesus' affirmation that Nicodemus was a failed religious authority as we come to the first of two affirmations of sovereignty, the only place we'll get to in our text today Nicodemus failed authority, verses 10 through 12. In fact, I'm just going to focus on verses 9 and 10 specifically today as we look at Nicodemus failed authority, the first of two affirmations of Jesus' sovereignty. The first assurance that we have that Nicodemus is a failed spiritual authority is in John 3, 9, where we read again, Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Then we read verse 10, Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? Clearly, Nicodemus did not enjoy what he was hearing from Jesus. He comes to Jesus at night, gushing out all manner of manipulation and flattery, followed by two absurd and exasperated questions regarding physical birth. And finally here, all that's left in Nicodemus is a five-word question that comes from total confusion, exhaustion, and disbelief. Nicodemus has no clue that salvation is God-given and grace-driven, blown into the heart of men by the power of the Holy Spirit, monergistically. 
that salvation is itself entirely a one-sided deal. He doesn't want to believe this because he has believed that striving in his own works for his whole life, he has accumulated the goodness to arrive at heaven in his own strength. John MacArthur says, Nicodemus still could not accept what he was hearing. He could not let go of his legalistic religious system and realize that salvation was a sovereign, gracious work of God's Spirit. MacArthur says, he has made little progress, Nicodemus has, since Jesus comments in verse 4, his lack of understanding, says MacArthur, is inexcusable. What about Jesus' response to Nicodemus? What do we make of this divine yet exasperated question that Jesus asks? Well, this rebuke couldn't be any stronger for the man known as the teacher in all of Israel. Jesus calls him out. Jesus calls him to the carpet, you could say. In wrestling terms, he takes him to the mat. Jesus seems exhausted, frustrated, perhaps furious with Israel's premier salvation authority. How dare this man have zero understanding of God's plan of salvation explained in the Old Testament? Had he never read Isaiah 53? He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. How dare Nicodemus take a title of honor and respect and preach a salvation full of dishonor and disrespect? How dare this pride-filled Pharisee so carelessly lead God's chosen people into the false security of man-centered salvation based on works that will ultimately take them to hell? Turn your Bibles to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. R.C. Sproul says, Jesus did not immediately answer Nicodemus' question. Instead, he chided Nicodemus for his ignorance. Sproul says, it was as if Jesus were saying, you don't know this? How, do you, how did you make it through graduate school? Nicodemus, this is foundational biblical truth. James Montgomery Boyce offers his own recreation of this portion of Jesus' conversation, which I find to be very appropriate and very helpful. I'll give it to you. James Boyce, he says, Nicodemus said, I have never observed the new birth. I can't believe it is possible. Jesus answered, Do you mean to tell me you have risen to the point of being a teacher in Israel and yet you have never observed the transformed life of a person who has been touched by my spirit? This is a great recreation because it highlights the fact that Nicodemus must have missed the salvation of the saints happening all around him. Not only had salvation not happened to him, and he knew that, but salvation was happening around him. When has the Lord stopped saving men and women? His question to Jesus begs that we ask our own questions about His role as the premier salvation authority in all of Israel. We must ask, has Nicodemus seen a saved soul? Was he so oblivious to salvation that he could not even affirm these salvation things in other people? How many people had been and were being saved right in front of him in Jerusalem? Did he not know anyone who was genuinely repentant for their sins? Is it the case that Nicodemus never saw spiritual rebirth in the flock of God over whom he provided spiritual care? Brothers and sisters, 
What about us? You know, we claim to know something about salvation. Do we know what it looks like? Do we have a clue? Do we live it out in our own lives, what genuine salvation is? Are we obedient Christ followers? Will people know us by our fruit? How can we know the actions and behaviors of the born again? Can we even know them? Can we observe with our eyes genuine faith, or is genuine faith elusive and we can't really see it? What about fake and phony and false, fictitious faith, pretenders? Can we spot the pretenders among us? Are we called to be mostly silent and ignorant about the actions of the self-proclaimed born again who come in among us, but then slide off into malicious gossip and slander? Or are we called upon by Jesus Christ to monitor the behaviors of our fellow believers? Uh-oh, pastor said accountability. Time for the bathroom break, and then I'm out to my car. Never see you again. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, listen to the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew 18, 15 through 17. When he says, Now if your brother sins, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. Give him the courtesy of talking about his faults to him alone personally. Treat him like you love him. Don't talk behind his back and slander him, maliciously gossip about him. Go to the man and talk to the man respectfully, courteously. Go to the man. Because if you do, if he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, then you are obligated to take two or one or two more witnesses with you, that's two or three people, so that by the mouths of two or three witnesses, every fact about the sinfulness that exists in his life may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to the three of y'all, likely your elders and you, if he refuses to listen to y'all, then you are obligated to tell his sinfulness to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as the Gentile and the tax collector. Which is to say, those elders that you pull into the conversation are going to have to make a determination about the state of this man's soul. They're going to have to look a man in the face and tell him, where you say to me that you believe, your actions tell me you're a liar. You're a pretender. Your faith is fake. It's made up. You don't have the ability to repent because the Spirit of God doesn't live inside of you. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is saying Salvation can be known. He is calling on the saints in his church to be discerning about genuine salvation. To be discerning. You must know, friend, when you tell me that you're a Christian, I'm going to believe you. 
but I'm going to hold you accountable to the biblical standard of behavior that's required upon you in Scripture because salvation, friend, comes with expectations of the behavior of believers. Jesus has expectations of your behavior. Inasmuch as you have expectations of my behavior right now, you must understand, so too do I have expectations of your behavior. The question is, where did you get your expectations of behavior? Did they find their source from Christ in Scripture with grace and truth perfectly balanced over your expectations? Jesus has expectations of our behavior. And He has clearly presented His expectations to us in Scripture. The most loving, the most gracious, the most kind thing you can do for another believer is to know them so well that you know when they are sinning. And when you know they are sinning, you go to them and you tell them, Brother, my heart is grieved and burdened because I see you sinning. You and I both know that your sinning is inconsistent with your claim of salvation in Christ alone. And brother, I'm here talking to you, pleading with you to repent for this sinning that we both can see. What you will find is that the genuine believer in Jesus Christ will do just that. They will repent to the glory and praise of God. When you call a sinning brother or sister on the carpet, as it were, when you take them to the mat for their sin, you have this assurance in Scripture that the born-again believer will repent. Praise God! The born-again believers are the ones who repent for their sins. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that Nicodemus, the lead teacher in all of Israel, probably never led anyone to genuine repentance for their faith? He was unable and unequipped to repent himself. And as a result, he was never able to lead anyone else in genuine repentance. That same indictment sits over the heads of countless hundreds and thousands of so-called pastors, teachers, and elders in our world today. Would you turn in your Bibles to Luke 1? Luke 1. Brothers and sisters, this Nicodemus scenario is exactly what Jesus' church has tried to avoid for the past 2,000 years. Paul gave the warning in Acts 20. It is the case that Hebrews 13, 17 says very plainly, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Submit to them so that they will do this with joy, that is, lead you with joy and not with groaning, for this would be unprofitable for you. It is profitable for you to have elders who watch over your souls. Elders, of course, who are biblically qualified, according to the qualifications found in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, and 1 Peter 5. Beyond this, you should talk with your elders, know them as men, discern for yourselves. Are you dealing with humble, gentle, kind, self-controlled men who are able to speak, exhort, and rebuke according to the need of the moment that it might give grace to those who hear? 
It is important to know from your elders how they will handle an unrepentant member in the church. Will your elders pursue the unrepentant who claim Christ as Savior and membership in your church? Will your elders tell the church if the unrepentant remains unrepentant, like Jesus commands in Matthew 18, 17? And will your elders ultimately remove the unrepentant from the church so that the church is left with purity and unity? How many so-called churches don't practice church discipline, which is the process of biblical restoration? You and I know the overwhelming majority of churches, their leaders are, fill, are, are those kind who would never practice Jesus' commands in Matthew 18, 15 through 17, because these church leaders out here in our society are too pragmatic. They're too pragmatic. They do what is expedient. They do what fills the seats. They do what keeps their salary coming in. They appeal to the masses, and the masses show up to receive a salvation that is man-centered and will ultimately take them to hell. They don't do this, church discipline, because they say discipline is too harsh. Church discipline is too harsh. It's a harsh thing. Do you realize that this harsh word gets slung around all over the place like ketchup? This, this harsh word, you can label anything you want harsh. It's so subjective. It's so subjective. And it's so foolish to look at the church discipline process and brand it harsh and dismiss it. When the words in your Bible are red letters, they're Jesus' words. Brothers and sisters, being an elder is not for the faint of heart. Effectively, your elders have to say to a person claiming to be a Christian, brother, your unrepentant heart tells me that you are not saved. I love you. So I'm calling you to repentance. And until you repent, I'm telling you, you're not welcome in our church. Determining unrepentance is not the work of gossiping women sitting around sipping coffee. Determining unrepentance is the work of born-again men who are called to lead Jesus' church. These men find their only protection in the Word of God and the sovereignty of God. For in the Word of God, they are qualified to lead, and in the Word of God, they are commanded to preach and pray for the saints, and in the Word of God, they are given illustrations and examples of behavior of the truly born again. You're in Luke 1, where we have several illustrations of the behavior of the redeemed. Read with me from Luke 1, 5, where Luke records in Luke 1, 5, in the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah, of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and righteous requirements of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Is it really the case, brothers and sisters, that Nicodemus didn't know the priest named Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist? Granted, this story had unfolded at the turn of the century 30 years before, but John the Baptist is just down the street at the Jordan River baptizing in John chapters 1 and chapter 3. Maybe righteous Elizabeth died in the 30 years that intervened between this story and the present one, but the story of her faithfulness to the Lord was being lived out by her son, John the Baptist, only 25 miles from Jerusalem. How could Nicodemus not take an interest in people who were genuinely devoted to the Lord? How did he not know these people? How did he not know the names? 
How do you not know the actions and the behaviors? Look at Luke 1.67. Look at Luke 1.67. Listen to this text. Listen for the solid theology that only comes out of a man who is born again. We read in Luke 1.67, And the father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he visited and accomplished redemption for his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath to which he swore to Abraham our father, to grant, that, uh, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, it's John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to make ready his way to give to his people the knowledge of salvation. Oh, what's that? To give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins? Because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to direct our feet into the way of peace. And the, ch and the child, that is John the Baptist, continued to grow and become strong in the spirit. And he lived in the desolate regions until the day of his public appearance in Israel. Brothers and sisters, these are the words of a born-again man. I'm making the case that salvation was well-known around Nicodemus for years and always had been. Perhaps the greatest example was the man John the Baptist himself, but Nicodemus did not have eyes or ears to see or hear or know spiritual second birth because Nicodemus was blind and deaf to all spiritual truth. And as a result, Nicodemus' spiritual authority in Israel was a massive, catastrophic failure. Turn back in your Bibles to John 1. John 1. We don't have time to read Mary's Magnificat in Luke 1.46, where the young woman's words declare very clearly that she was born again, likely at age 14 or so, maybe earlier. Nor do we have time to discuss the spiritual regeneration of Joseph, Mary's husband. We need to pass over the spiritual rebirth of Simeon and Anna, who were both in the temple when Jesus was presented there shortly after his birth. All of this born-again salvation existed in Israel during the time of Nicodemus, and likely hundreds and maybe thousands more, who the Holy Spirit had birthed with new life, which caused them to be humble, faithful, kind, gentle, peaceable, patient, loving, obedient and full of worship for God. The behaviors of believers have always been known. That's what I want to say to you. The behaviors of believers in Jesus Christ and the Lord God have always been known. Genuine spiritual leaders are concerned for the behavior of believers in their care, in addition to the genuine salvation of those to whom they minister. You're in John 147, where we see the concerns and the abilities of the greatest spiritual shepherd Israel had ever known. The Apostle John reports in John 1.47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said to him, Behold, truly, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. By this comment, we understand Jesus is concerned with the context, or the, sorry, the content of the character of his disciples. Nathanael said to him, verse 48, From where do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And by this comment, we understand the good shepherd always keeps his eye on his flock. He, we understand the special love of a shepherd keeps his eyes locked on the people who have received God's special love. 
Was Jesus right to place his special affection on Nathanael? He'd just seen him. He doesn't really know Nathanael, does he? Ultimately, the Apostle John is communicating to his audience that Jesus is omniscient. He's all-knowing, which, we, which he must as part of his larger goal of sharing that Jesus is God. Only God is omniscient and Jesus is God. Being God and omniscient, ask a simple question. Was Jesus right about Nathanael? Was Nathanael worthy of Jesus' time, attention, affection, and praise? Why? How was it the case? The answer is because Nathanael was previously born again, born from above, born spiritually. Spiritually, he was a rebuilt man. Some of you are going to go home on your Father's Day and rebuild your automobiles. This is a rebuilt man, spiritually. How do we know this? Because we have expectations of the words that come out of the mouths of the born again. What do we read in verse 49? Nathanael answered him and said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And I would have you know that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, Nathanael is another proof of the fact that monergistic salvation done in the power of the Holy Spirit was happening all around Israel in the hearts of God's elect, and Nicodemus in Jerusalem was spiritually blind to these things. These things. Nicodemus was blind to everything about salvation. These things. Turn back to John 3. Nicodemus was a failed spiritual authority in Israel. He had no understanding of genuine biblical salvation. He had no understanding of the expectation of the behavior of believers. Nicodemus' own words condemn him, and certainly Jesus' words perfectly condemned his failed authority. At the most basic level, spiritual authorities who serve the living God must know salvation and the spiritual code of conduct, if I may use that terminology. Church elders, preachers, and shepherds are required to teach the saints what to believe, and how to behave in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. When it comes to behavior, the shepherd must lead by example. Must lead by example. Steve Lawson says, The new birth is presented in Scripture in such a lucid manner that it should be known by all. Lawson says the teaching on regeneration was so elementary that Jesus fully expected this noted teacher to know this fundamental doctrine. For this reason, Jesus graced Nicodemus with rebuke, saying to him in John 3.10, Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? You see, friends, in this comment from Jesus, this question, this hurtful question, Nicodemus was blessed by this rebuke. Because rebuke, friends, is exactly... What Jesus says leads to repentance, according to Luke 17, 3 and 4. And only the repentant are the ones who receive forgiveness. This rebuke did a work of salvation. John MacArthur says something after that memorable evening that he spent with Jesus, but before the crucifixion, sometime in there, Nicodemus came to understand sovereign grace and experience the reality of the new birth. Steve Lawson cast light on what happened to Nicodemus, saying, Moses said that salvation was a divine act that must be cut into the human heart like circumcision, removing the pride of the flesh. He says, Lawson does, the result of this spiritual heart surgery is loving God with the whole of our being. 
after the spiritual heart surgery, Lawson says, only at that time, now we can live. He says the obvious implication is that before this divine procedure, the uncircumcised heart does not love God. Such was the case with Nicodemus. Until you get to John 7 and John 19, and then it is clear that the Spirit of God blew love for Jesus into Nicodemus' heart. This was the case for Christopher Pike as well. Christopher Pike. He was raised in the church by his father, Bishop James Pike. He became a very rebellious son, most likely because the faith of his father was fictitious, fake, and fraudulent, and Christopher picked up on that hypocrisy and ran his own route in life on his own terms, just like his dad had taught him to do. Christopher got involved with drugs and alcohol and lived a very troubled life until Jesus' spiritual winds began to blow and the Holy Spirit led Christopher at age 20 to a Christian event on the campus of UC Berkeley where he heard the gospel and he believed. James Boyce said, he found what his father, who, was criti- with, who with his critical approach to the Bible, had apparently missed. The son found it. He found a real Jesus. Christopher was born again. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 11 to close our time. I have to ask, brothers and sisters, do we know what happens at salvation and after salvation? Do we understand salvation and expectations on God's terms? After the circumcision of the heart, do we know what Jesus expects of the children of God who've been born again, born from above? Shall we set expectations on the behavior of believers? Is it right and good and just to hold believers in Jesus accountable to a set of biblical behaviors? The answer to these questions is emphatically yes. The elders of the local church are required to teach salvation, to call for all to call all who are in the church to a life of repentance and to build up the body of Christ in the unity of the Spirit. As our first act of creating unity in the body of Christ at Community Bible Church, the elders desire to know just who we're shepherding. We request all of the born-again among us who love obedience to Christ, we ask them to attend our membership classes and fill out our membership application. On the application and in the membership classes, we discuss the code of conduct at CBC, which we call our 10 affirmations of membership. You can see the 10 affirmations of membership on the back of the insert that's in your bulletin today. Look at the list, friend. Look at it and ask yourself the question, are these expectations overbearing, overly restrictive, unreasonable, and unworthy of the bride of Christ? I believe that your answer to me would be, no, Oliver, no, they're not. I would then ask you, friend, are you obedient to the biblical expectations of your behavior on the list that are simply extracted right out of the text of Scripture? You see, Nicodemus, I'm sure, was no stranger to placing restrictions on the behavior of people under his care. The problem was he burdened his people with rules and regulations that their shoulders were never intended to bear. He didn't know salvation himself, and neither did he know what to expect and what he could expect and should expect from the behavior of the born-again believer. That is not the case with us here at Community Bible Church. We know biblical expectations of behavior must match the words of Christ in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, when he said in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, come to me, 
all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Brothers and sisters, this is the glorious sound of Jesus calling his born-again children into right relationship with him and his bride, the church. Jesus has a light burden and an easy yoke for your shoulders to carry in this life. The elders of this church are the spiritual authorities given by Christ who will help you see, know, and love the light burden of life in Christ. My greatest desire for you is that you be born again, born from above, made spiritually alive by the choice and grace of God alone, not yourself, and that you would quickly come to realize that the best place for your spiritual growth and the glory of God is participation in a God-honoring local church. My hope for you is that you know salvation and that you do salvation, not on your terms, on Jesus' terms. Father in heaven, I thank you for this dear, dear group of brothers and sisters in Christ. The salvation that you've placed on them is remarkable. It's clearly seen in the way that your spirit blows through them as they love, give, serve here in this church. I thank you, Father, each week for their attentiveness for their desire to learn, to grow, to put off the old man, to be renewed in their mind, and to put on the new man made in righteousness and the holiness of the truth. And so, Father, we pray that your spirit would blow around us on all the places that you allow us to reach out into in this community, that you might use us declaring your word and the power of your salvation to save others also, that this fellowship might grow. We pray these things to the building up of your body, the church. We pray these things for the glory of Christ. We pray these things that our obedience would meet your expectation. In Jesus' name, amen.